Welcome to Multifamily AP 360, the show where we discuss 360-degree views on mindset, passive, and active multifamily investment. If you're looking for tips and strategies, or just want to learn from the experiences of others, both good and bad, then listen on. This is Multifamily AP 360 with your host, Ramakrishna Chunchu. Today's our guest is Abhi Shemesh from AmeriNode Exchange. Welcome, Abhi. How are you doing? Good, Rama. Thank you for having me. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And a little bit about Abhi. Abhi Shemesh is the co-founder, senior managing member, and chief acquisitions officer at AmeriNode Exchange. He has been operating with the primary and secondary mortgage markets for over two decades. Abhi's background lies in residential and commercial mortgage loan origination. He made the full transition into the secondary market and all loan acquisitions in early 2006. So with that, Abhi, you want to add anything to your background? Yeah, I appreciate that introduction. It pretty much sums it up. Back in the early 2000s, I began my career on the very low level end of a junior loan officer in a traditional originations mortgage lending firm and began the journey there, which really kind of led me to discover originations. Of course, at that point, I was in one state, the state of Pennsylvania, where I'm originally from. And moving through that in the early 2000s, went through to another outfit that provided us with an opportunity to transact across 16 state jurisdictions, performing originations both in the residential, multifam, and commercial which really expanded our horizons. And then at that point, really kind of learned a lot about the secondary mortgage market. And as you mentioned in your introduction, made the full transition late 2005, early 2006 with the founding of AmeriNote Exchange. Awesome. Thank you. So you have over two decades of experience in like residential and commercial mortgage side. So there's a lot of stuff happening in mortgage industry at this point and lending world. So what's your take on current or your prediction on current bank? There are some issues with the banks, right? SVB or some other stuff. So what's your take on that? My take on that is I'm still kind of formulating thoughts, but we here at Amerinode Exchange and our team, strategy team, you know, we really wanted to kind of dig into this on our own besides just reading headlines, which a lot of people do. They, they see the headlines, some engage in the information, others do not. But the point of the matter is, is that you really need to start looking at the banks that have collapsed. These are banks that were, you know, it didn't start with Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank was the largest of the banks in the United States that took over and collapsed. The actual first bank was a Los Angeles-based crypto bank called Silver Lake, Silver Gate, one or the other. I apologize. I'm not drawing a blank. That bank was a sole cryptocurrency bank. They funded companies like MicroStrategy, which is the leader in Bitcoin acquisition using as a treasury instrument on their balance sheet. And of course, there was a phenomenal collapse there about four days before 
Silicon Valley. Now, Silicon Valley Bank is highly trenched in the tech space. And part of that tech space in Silicon Valley, of course, is the crypto community. So they were heavily involved in startups. They were heavily involved in more startups and crypto, but they had a lot of crypto startups there. So that was the common thread was the digital asset space. And then, of course, you had Signature Bank, which was one of the board members was Bernie Frank, which is one of the authors of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Act bill, who went on, if I'm not mistaken, national television and was lamenting on how healthy his bank was. You know, he was complaining basically about how healthy his bank was. And they just came in and took it over. And he thinks they took it over because they too were also heavily involved in the digital asset space. And then of course you had First Republic, which was another San Francisco bank. So there's a thread here, right? So you have specifically Silicon Valley, West Coast, specifically Northern California banks, with the exception of Signature. I believe it was New York that still had a wide digital assets footprint. So the, 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 you know, in conjunction with the central bank digital currency that's being rolled out through FedCoin, which launches in July of 2023, and then you have the targeting, in my opinion, the targeting of these crypto adjacent or crypto entrenched banks that are transacting and bringing finance 1.0 on ramps to finance 2.0 assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies. It is very clear that the regulators are weeding out or targeting these banks based on these digital asset portfolios that they have. And of course, they're also going after publicly traded companies that transact in the digital asset space like Coinbase. So that is my take on the American footprint. Then you pivot to Europe and the EU, and then you look at Credit Suisse, right? Wow. No one was really expecting that. Now, we were keeping an eye on it. Credit Suisse was the darling of the EU banking community. I think Deutsche Bank is also, there's some also another rumblings about how Deutsche Bank may be the next one. But Credit Suisse was quite unexpected on our end. Doesn't really have much regarding digital assets. I, I'm going to be very frank. I did not dig in too much to the Credit Suisse, how that fits into the profile, but understand that the interest rate hikes are definitely playing a role in that. And we know that because the jurisdictions of Australia, the European Union, and all the participating banks in that community, including their central banks, were complaining to Jay Powell, our Federal Reserve, the leader of the Federal Reserve, the director of the Federal Reserve, had honched over there. And they were saying, look, you guys are raising interest rates too fast. Our employment market here in the EU and the employment market in Australia is not nearly as strong as the United States employment market. So we were faring better in the U.S., than our Western allies like Australia, New Zealand, and the EU. So that may have been part of the reason for the Credit Suisse collapse. It may also have something to do with the transition from analog money, right, which is paper money, the paper EU, the paper dollar, so forth and so on, to digital money, which a lot of our money is digital nowadays, but they're looking to put it on a centralized ledger called blockchain. And they're looking to utilize that through something called FedCoin. And in some cases, they're looking to partition that out into different categories across different countries. But in essence, it's going to be a centralized blockchain 
in which a centralized Keynesian-style monetary policy will be pulling the levers, all in good faith, right? So their, their intentions may be good, but there may be some dire circumstances to that, you know, especially if you ask an Austrian economic proponent. Thank you, Irmai. Thank I, you for sharing yes. that. Sure. Yeah. Sorry for the long-winded answer. It's a very dense yeah. topic, so I tried to shorten it as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And how exactly that is affecting, you know, primary mortgage markets or, or lending industry in US? Very much affecting it completely. So everyone knows that the commercial real estate market is in trouble. You know, you can go on YouTube and you can find all in meetings that we were conducting with investors, you know, mom and pop investors on March 20th, 2020. It's floating out there somewhere on YouTube uh, where I commented that this you know, virus is deadly serious, but it's very interesting that we start seeing all of these monetary moves. Like the first, if you look at the first draft of the CARES Act, that was very quickly altered, but the first draft, the very first chapter was called Digital Dollar. And a piece of legislation has something to do with the virus. So that was a very telling thing that they were bringing finance at the forefront, which kind of indicated that it may just be more than positioning of helping the public through a pandemic. We saw some financial positioning, which I found very unusual. The reason I mention this is because the first thing I thought of is, oh my God, this is significantly, these shutdowns are going to, these lockdowns are going to significantly affect commercial. Now we have a lot of people in our loan acquisition space that's like, okay, great. We got thousands and thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars sitting on the sidelines. We're waiting for those non-performing mortgage loans to hit the market so we can buy those loans and acquire the property the same way that investors were doing that made fortunes in the 2011s, 2012s, 2013s. And I had posed the theory that it was, you know, history, I say this across many spectrums, across many podcasts that I've been doing, and I'm sure people like your listeners may have heard this, but history very rarely repeats itself, but it always rhymes. And we're not going, I don't think we're going to see toxic mortgage crash like we did last time in 2008. What we're going to see is an unemployment issue within an inflationary environment. So it's going to be a little bit different. It's going to rhyme. And the culprit, the, I don't want to say the losers, but the target or the, the most affected section of the market will be commercial, retail, commercial office, and in some cases, commercial medical space. You're also going to see a renaissance in the same asset classes, commercial office, commercial medical, commercial retail. I'll give you an example. So we specialize across many different collateral types, many different spectrums. The example I want to use here is when you had we, we saw a, an investor in the South Florida area scooping up gas stations. Now, we looked at the investor and we saw that they were affiliated with the hospitality industry. And I, what's going on here? Well, what does that mean? Turns out that this investor very, very cleverly was scooping up cheap, problematic, old, environmentally unsound gas station properties for Nothing. I mean, just, I don't want to say pennies on the dollar, but, you know, dozens of cents on the dollar. And then what they were doing is they were affiliated with a hospitality arm out of the northeastern part of the country. They were looking to expand into southern Florida. And what they did 
was they bought these properties, they converted them. Of course, this would only work in warm climates, but they converted them to these eating establishments, which were half indoor, half outdoor. They converted the garage into like a dining room. It's a very unique business model in which they are now rolling out as franchises, from what I understand. I'm not going to mention the name because I don't want to, it is a colleague and I don't know what their plans are. So, but I will say that it is highly intriguing on what they're doing. Beautiful Americana, you know, organic, grass-fed this, you know, organic that, just hitting all the marks. And it transformed small towns like Naples, small towns like Benita. I think they're moving into Miami. I think they're moving into Fort Myers. They're talking about Austin. They're talking about San Diego. They're, this is a very unique transition from these environmentally challenged properties into buying them on the cheap and converting them into something that no one even thought about. That is what I'm talking about with the Renaissance. You're going to see that happen in office space. I'm not saying eating establishments, but you know, office space conversion to you know, affordable housing, medical facilities. Maybe there will be some sort of Renaissance in the medical industry or some co- sort of new product or service that hits the market that would allow that to occur. But we're going to see a very large transition. So I think, to your point, the interest rate environment is definitely going to bring many commercial assets to market especially with the the fact that you know i want to say half of the one trillion dollars of commercial loans that are floating around out there are going to come due through a balloon of some sort in the next 18 months that's going to be very interesting and our company is already seeing the outcome of that i would say the benefits i will also say the downturns but we're going to see a lot of activity on that now with regards to all of your single family you know, owner-occupied borrowers that are going, well, what does this mean for me? What does this mean if I want to buy houses and flip them? Look, it means that I don't think we're going to see a flooding of properties hitting the market, but you have to be very careful that if you are looking for high LTV loans, you better make sure that you have extra cash reserves. If you're building houses or constructing, you better build in some extra time and extra equity cushion and capital cushion for all of those bumps and bruises that we're all going to find that we experience along the way. And you just want to make sure you're building in, as we say in the industry, some extra emergency runway for that unfortunate rough or crash landing that may happen during the course of a rehab, during the course of a construction project. You may come out unscathed, but be prepared to pay more for capital and be prepared for unexpected challenges, which is why you should have extra equity and extra capital in the bank. And that's my advice. It's not rosy, but it's definitely more, you've got to be physically fit when going into this and not having your plan spread out everywhere. I would identify that you need to keep it tight. You need to keep it concise. You need to keep it focused. Simple is easier. Simple is being, you know, simplifying the plan is easier. Too many acrobats, too many complications can lead to too many unknowns, which can lead to you not sticking the landing and then literally having the whole world, especially if you're leveraged through the teeth, the whole world just collapse on top of you, which may be the only option, you know, in your environment. So just be cautious. Awesome stuff. Yeah. Thank you for sharing great stuff. And how do you see interest rates from next 18 months or you know 24 months old do you see same kind of interest rate it will go down 
how, how exactly you are seeing that? Well, you know, there's a lot of people that are saying quantitative tightening and quantitative. Look, two things I would recommend. Listen to what the Federal Reserve says. They usually tell you what they're going to do, and then they usually do it. And people act so surprised when they actually just do what they say they're going to do. So listen to what Jay Powell says he's going to do. Don't listen to the headlines, especially the clickbait. You know what I'm talking about. Unfortunately, we all have to be, you know, some sort of CIA intelligence officers nowadays reading. It's not just reading an article in the Wall Street Journal because you can pick up, you know, the Washington Post or the New York Times and see the polar opposite of what's being said. You really have to put your detective hat on. I highly recommend that you go to trade publications. I highly recommend that you go directly to the horse's mouth, like the Federal Reserve. But to answer your question, is I feel that interest rates are going to continue to rise. They may pause. And the only reason they may pause is because employment numbers start getting so terrible that they can't keep rising interest rates because they will plunge us into a full-blown depression like the 1920s. So if they pause, it's not necessarily a good thing. I don't think they're going to reduce. I would be very surprised if they do. A lot of people say, well, they're quantitative tightening. I argue that point. They are quantitative tightening with this hand, and then they're quantitative easing with this hand. And you would say, well, how are they quantitative easing? So after the fall of the Silicon Valley Bank, the Federal Reserve rolled out the bank term funding program. What is that? So the BTFP, which allows, now follow me on this. It allow like, let's say that you have your Bank of America and you have all of your money locked up for the next 5, 10, 30 years, whether it be mortgage-backed securities, whole loan mortgages that you originated in the 2010s that are 3.5% interest rate, the inflation rate 6%, you're underwater because the interest that you're charging is way below what the inflationary rate is and way below what other assets are. So your only options are to sell your assets at a loss or find organization that will allow you, let's say that you own a mortgage portfolio, and let's say that that portfolio is worth $100 million, but you take that portfolio out to market, like we're in the process of transacting on a $568 million whole loan mortgage portfolio with a central Texas-based credit union, and you know they have a very large, you know the weighted average coupon is like 3.99%. I mean, because they've been originating loans for the past 10 years at very low interest rates. So I'm not saying the credit union can do this, but let's just say Bank of America or JP Morgan, let's say you have a $100 million mortgage portfolio and you try to bring it to a company like us and we say, hey, we're going to buy your $100 million mortgage loan for $90 million. It's a 10% haircut, which is actually a very good offer in today's market. They say, absolutely not. We can't do that. We just can't do that. So what they can do, now they know that their portfolio is only worth $90 million. So in some cases, it can be worth $80 million. They think it's worth $100 million, or on the books, it says it's worth $100 million, but the value has dropped so significantly that it's only worth $80 million now or $90 million. So they can go to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve will give them, let them borrow $100 million for their $80 million or $90 million loan portfolio. So they're allowing them to borrow over par for an asset that is not valued at that 
and they're giving them a one-year loan with possibility of extension. Where's the Federal Reserve getting this money? They don't have, they got to print that money. That, my friend, is called quantitative easing. So they are quantitative easing. It's a form of quantitative easing without congressional oversight, without saying that they're bailing out the banks. It's just, it's in the form of a loan and the taxpayer's on the hook and the loan may or may not be paid back. It's a very favorable terms for the bank, the borrower itself. And who's on the hook? The taxpayers. So that right there, that in conjunction with the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that passed last year, that itself was is going to create a massive amount of interest rate hikes or inflation. And then in addition to that, they're just lending money out for assets that aren't worth what they say they are. On the other hand, so I am not a big fan of Keynesian economics, and that's what this is. You know, truth be told, I am a team player. You look, I will say, you know, I understand why it's happening. I hope the banks do pay back the loans, make the Fed whole, as they say in the digital asset space, burn tokens or, you know, quantitative tightening to reduce the M2 money supply so we can get back to normal levels. But look, every time there's an interest rate hike, we don't feel the effects of that for at least six months. They did 15 hikes in the past year and a half. So that's a very long, you know, six months, six months, six times 15. I mean, that's, that could take years to feel the effects of that. So this is a, we're in this for the long haul. Can something change? Sure. Something can change. The aliens can land on the White House lawn tomorrow, or, you know, there can be some sort of debt restructuring where the IMF comes in and says, look, I know we got a debt ceiling increase or deal done, but that's going to happen again and again. And we may at some point, and I'm hoping we don't, I'm not rooting for this, but we may at some point default. And if there is a default there, there will be some kind of play where the IMF or some other likely actor will come in and say, look, the Federal Reserve is going to take over the fractional banking system. And we want borrowers and depositors to deal we want, you know, Rama and Abby to have direct checking and savings accounts with the Federal Reserve. And I really think that this is, that's where this whole thing is going, is that the Federal Reserve is, in essence, competing with the fractional banking system, and they are bottlenecking all of the, you know, fractional banking may not be perfect, but it is most certainly decentralized to a certain extent. And they want to, in order to have central planning, which is what our global liberal economic or global conservative economic, however you view it, the global economic order is moving towards a central planning system where there's going to be participation across many nations. The word nation may not even exist anymore at a certain point in time. And this is not controversial. This is actually in the literature on the UN's website. So we're just seeing what they call Agenda 2030, which is the UN's plan to be more sustainable, be more equitable, you know, all of the words that we're hearing nowadays. And this starts with food, this starts with money or banking, and this also starts with carbon or climate. So we're just seeing what they've been planning and 160 nations signed off on back in 1991 when George W.H. Bush signed off on this agenda. It was called Agenda 21 back then, but he signed off on it. They all signed off on it. And they're just rolling that out as planned. We just get so quickly. So we, I thought a lot about this and I hope we maintain our sovereignty through 
our store of value, our ability to transact in real estates, our ability to have access to capital, both for commercial, small business, and individuals. So it's as I'm sure we all hear, it's very interesting times. And the next two election cycles, I mean, for sure, the next four or five years will allow us to see things a little bit more clearly. Got it. Thank you. How can listeners can connect with you, Abhi? So the easiest way to connect with myself is through our website called Amerinote Exchange. Amerinote Exchange is a loan acquisition firm that specializes in the acquisition of both residential, commercial, you know, and special use property assets secured by real estate. These are mortgage loans, both existing, excuse me, performing and non-performing across many different lien positions, as well as many different performance levels. The name of our website, again, is Amerinote Exchange. Com, and the word exchange is only spelled with an X. Uh, we are also rolling out our parent company, which is going to be the supplier of liquidity for Amerinote Exchange and the, its other properties at Amerinote.capital, which will go live here in the next week or so. But Amerinote Exchange is our primary touch point between us and the retail market, as well as the commercial market. So AmerinoteExchange.com, that's where you can find us. I'm also on Twitter. We are also on Twitter at AmerinoteX, at AmerinoteX on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you very much, Arby. Thank you. Thank you, Rama. That's the end of this episode of Multifamily AP 360, but we'd love to continue to help you on your journey. Head to ushacapital.com slash podcast to join our email list for more tips and strategies. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. This is Multifamily AP 360 with Ramakrishna Chuntu. We'll see you next time.